with great pleasure that we've got the opportunity to have on our program Mr John Poynton AO, Corporate Advisor, Stockbroker, Investment Banker. You've had so many roles throughout your career. We'll explore all of that, but I thought we'd open our discussion with your upbringing, if we could. Born in Perth and attended Christchurch Grammar School. Tell us a little bit about your early life. Born in Melbourne, actually. Yeah, which was ha handy in the WA Inc days because people would say, oh, you're from Perth. <laughs> no, no, I was born in Melbourne. Oh, that's all right then. You know, even though I left when I was two, that didn't seem to matter. But um, yeah, so my father was a stockbroker and he went from uh, Perth to Melbourne, worked in a stockbroking firm. And my sister and I were born in Melbourne. Then he came back and started Hartley Pointon. And, um, you know, I, I had a pretty normal upbringing, you know, sort of uh, went to uh, went to a boys' school, uh, didn't do particularly well, scraped into university. <laughs> um, I was lucky, really, because if I hadn't gone to that school, I probably wouldn't have, and things might have been different. But um, And then into uni, worked in London, and then ended up inside my father's firm um, back in the, uh, in the 70s. You studied business and commerce at UWA. Was that because you'd had such uh, an early exposure to business through your, through your father? Or? Well, one of the things, Robert, that I often talk about, because it's really interesting, I, I love the word prescience, you know, this ability to sort of identify trends and what's going to come in the future. So my father was one of these people that always said, don't give people advice unless they ask for it. Which is interesting when you're the son, because you normally expect that you're going to be told to do this, that and the other, and he never did. So when I remember when I was about 15, I'd watched him, you know, talking on the phone and doing deals and stuff, and I said to him once, you know, I wouldn't mind doing what you've been doing. Um, no pressure from him. And if I were to do that, you know, what should I prepare for? Or he might have said, if you want to do that, this is what you should do. 1966, right? She said, you really need to study business, you need to study Japanese and number one trading partner back in the day, you need to study geology because you, um, you know, basically, um, you know, need to be able to understand what's going on in a resource state, you need to get a pilot's licence so you can fly around to all these things, you need to work in London because that's where all the capital is coming from. So there might have been one or two other things. And I didn't really give a great deal of thought to that and I ended up cherry picking the bits that I wanted to do like going to London and getting a pilot's licence stuff like that. But in hindsight it was pretty interesting to, to actually have that view. This is where we are in the world, this is where we're going and this is what you need to do to, to be ready for that. And I often say that to people, do a SWOT analysis understand your strengths and weaknesses and then work out what skills you're going to need for the future that you see for the world or the state or the place you live. And he kind of put me onto that. It was really interesting. Tell us about your experiences in business post-university. You mentioned that you travelled to London, but before you joined your, your father's firm, what were you doing in those sort of six or seven years post-uni? Well, so I was, again, not a very good student, um, and we'll talk about that later, but um, so I went to London to work in a firm that was actually doing quite a bit of business with my father's firm, so I got a job there. But it, it ended up being at a terrible time. It was in the IRA, it was bombing people and, you know, the coal miner strike and it was terrible. Um, and we got paid nothing and it was just awful time. But it was really interesting because it was the last remnants of, you know, in a sense, the, the English aristocracy running finance. In, in the UK, in London, and I was on the floor of the London Stock Exchange, and these toffee-nosed 
people would, boy, come over here, you know, and you were the colonial, turned me into a Republican just like that, you know. And, um, but it was interesting because not long after that, that all went away with the Big Bang and capital coming into the industry, the Americans, and, you know, that, that idea of born to rule just went away. And it was all about it, um, meritocracy after that. And that drove a lot of my view of the world after that. So I, I worked in London then was planning to come back and going straight into my father's firm but it was a dreadful time it was in the early mid 70s so we had rex connor and gough whitlam and we had you know the oil crisis and huge interest rate it was just a terrible time so when i wanted to come back my father said well there's no jobs here so he said we've got a farm why don't you go work on the farm and wait and see what happens so i was a farm laborer for a year and then after that he said I'm sorry I can't afford to pay you the meagre wage that I'm paying you, so you better get a job. So the only job I could get was actually in the public service in Western Australia. And it ended up being initially a complaints officer in the Consumer Affairs Department, that was interesting, and then uh, an industrial inspector, which went, you had to make sure employers were paying people their proper wages, and plenty of people weren't. And I'm, you know, pretty much centre, right of centre in my views, but it, it also developed a pretty interesting view of the world for me, that there were all these people that were really being taken advantage of, and I kind of, you know, I developed a bit of a social conscience in all of that. And then not long after that, I'd probably done a couple of years of meandering around, and then finally an opening came in the firm in the, in the 76, I think it was. So I joined at whatever age I was then, and, uh, and then was there for 20 years. As you said, joined in 76, left in, in 96, you're managing director of the firm. Take us inside, in particular, that 80s period as, as a stockbroker. What was that like? Well, it was fantastic, and I loved being on the floor of the stock exchange. Um, <clears throat> it's quite, you know, combative and noisy and, you know, um, competitive. And so I really thrived in that sort of on the floor of the stock exchange. I never was a very good stockbroker picking stocks or anything like that, but I wasn't a bad trader. Um, in, the, in the sense of, you know, executing orders and things. And it was a time that things were opening up more, a lot of more interaction with uh, the exchanges in Sydney and Melbourne. That led, obviously, to the formation of the ASX. So over time, I got much more involved in the governance side of things, you know. So I, I became more involved in the governance of the firm and also on the committee of the Stock Exchange and then ultimately chair of the exchange in Perth and then on the board of the ASX as it was formed. So that was a really interesting time. And of course, that period of, yeah, this rush of activity um, in the late 70s, early 80s, then hit 81-2 and it all went quiet again. So we had this really volatile period um, which for a long time wasn't replicated to so a lot of younger people only ever saw good times and so when things like the you know the tech wreck came or GFC I mean, what was that you know whereas we'd had it and I I became CEO of Hartley Point and uh, in <clears throat> I think it was um, August of 87 and October 87 walked into this you know worst crisis the markets had had since the 30s and everyone said, what are you going to do now? I don't know. <laughs> but it turned out, because I hadn't been there and seen it before in that sort of magnitude, I thought, oh, well, the world can't have ended. And we grew the firm through that period and it came out in the early 90s very strong. 
And so that was an interesting experience. What were some of the, the uh, skills or, or values you learnt as a stockbroker over those 20 years? Well, I think understanding greed and fear is really interesting. You know, it's pretty base emo emotions, fear of missing out, greed, fear. Um, trust, loyalty, honesty, you know, there are lots of people attracted to that profession, if you want to call it that, because you can make money quickly. And you can make money unethically as well. And so it was a real interesting insight into both people inside the profession and how they behave, but also the, the clients around them and the promoters and the people running businesses. And, and you, you got to see very clearly the different styles. Um, and at that time, say, Michael Cheney emerged as the CEO of West Farmers. And, you know, exemplary behaviour in an environment where West Australia's image had been quite tarnished. Um, so that was, that was interesting for me to be part of watching that all happen and the emergence of Western Australia as a, a much more credible um, and, and to be taken seriously jurisdiction. Then in 96 you launched GEM uh, alongside Mark and, and a couple of other partners. The move away from stockbroking into more corporate advisory, how did you find that and what was the mandate of, of the firm in those early years? So I, I, I guess once I became CEO of Hartley Point and I really wanted to grow it into a regional investment bank, so we opened an office in Sydney, we opened an office in Singapore <clears throat> and I had in mind to avoid the kind of volatility of earnings that came from just being exposed to what was going on in the market. So we did money market, we did uh, corporate advisor, we did um, management consulting you know, when Mark and the guys came in. And it was a bit of a step too far for my then partners and they agitated and eventually it was kind of me or them so I left and Mark and Jeff and a couple of other people came and we started, uh, you know, GEM Consulting, Jeff, Errol, Mark, and um, Point and a Partner. So we had two parts. One was management consulting and the other was corporate finance. And I guess from not having been a very good stockbroker, it was a great insight into getting much closer to the decision-making going on inside companies. You know, the, the consultants would set strategy and then the corporate finance is about kind of making it happen in terms of you know the capital raising M&A and all of that. So that was a bit of an eye-opener for me and I was surrounded by really smart people, you know, people who had got, in Mark's case, you know, Baker Scholarship at Harvard and Jeff, you know, University Medal at University of New South Wales and those sorts, they're much more academically competent than me. So it was a really good experience um, and that gave me the the sort of insight into then what it might be like being a director, um, non-exec director, so I've started that parallel career. Clearly you had a, a massive influence on the firm both in terms of your experience but also in terms of your, your connection here in Perth and, and right across Australia. That business, uh, Gem, sold in 2001 for, for a good sum. Where did you find yourself sort of, I, I think I read you took a few weeks off at one point prior to founding Azua Capital in, in 04. What were you doing sort of in those early 2000s? Yeah, well, so <clears throat> I think, you know, we, we were really quite surprised about the success of GEM PP, uh, PPG, we used to call it. Um, and, and the South Africans came over and said, we really want to buy you. And we're going, oh, OK. We were very keen to make sure that was a successful acquisition, although they never really engaged. So we did our time, which was a total of eight years. So four years under our control and another 
another four years of handcuffs. And then at the end of it, when the South Africans hadn't really engaged to the extent we thought they would or could have, should have, <clears throat> we thought, right, well, we're going to go again, but we're not going to do consulting this time. We're just going to do corporate finance. And that was the, the Azure uh, model. And um, we basically all decided that because it was going to be pretty intense, we'd have some time off. So I think it was three months off and we went around the world and had a good time and then came back and really focused on the establishment of Azure. And that was in, yeah, 04. Um, so that, that <clears throat> you know, again, because there was a bit of a vacuum here in the West, that, that got traction quite quickly. You chaired that business up until 2016, I think it was. What, what were the fundamentals that allowed that business to grow and continue to grow as it has today, but particularly over the, the years that you were involved from starting in an 04 right up until 2016, such a strong business here in the West. What, why is that? Well, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to be surrounded by really smart young people and I mentioned the people that came into Hartley Point and then then GM PPG and then subsequently Azure and now Point and Stavriano whereby it was kind of a bit of a combination of their smarts, my network, an ethos around you know real really giving clients the best possible service and I think here being a long way from the head office of some of our competitors in Melbourne and Sydney you were able to offer the A-team and deliver the A-team, whereas I would say that <clears throat> from time to time a, you know, a major bank might offer the A-team, come over and pitch, but then deliver the C-team, because the, 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 the really smart people inside the global banks want to be close to the CEO so they can get promoted and they can get the bigger deals. So it gave us an opportunity in the West to really offer the same level of competence <clears throat> and much better and more, a more responsive service. Or proactive service um, at a lower price generally um, and that, that got traction and um, you know it's still as you say it's still going strong today. And more recently in late 2019 early 2020 you launched this firm here today Point and Stavriano what's the the focus of the firm and and what are some of the deals that you've that you've been working on? So the focus is not dissimilar. Um, we don't raise money, not dissimilar to Azure in the sense that uh, we're, <clears throat> we give corporate advice. And, and Chris has got a background, Macquarie, UBS and Treasury, and did a lot of work uh, on the FIRB. So he's, <clears throat> he's very good at debt restructuring, equities, um, equity restructuring, um, complex situations that need you know, a, a really strong intellectual focus and so there's you know there's clients in um, manufacturing there's clients in in the resources sector there's debt restructuring in in the energy field so there's a lot of different things it's not just a focus on resources which you might imagine would be what you would do there's a lot of other you know whether it's agriculture you know we represent a, <clears throat> a quite strong agricultural business um, in the cattle sector um, you know, in, in the Kimberley. So if I think about it, there's probably 15 different mandates at the moment, none of which is the same as the other. Um, and, and, you know, we've got a, a great, strong, young team here. And as I said, we offer things that probably others can't, whether they're existing firms here or more likely, you know, people from elsewhere, Melbourne, Sydney, even overseas. 
all these years later, are you still finding that you know the wise men of the east sort of come over, pitch their wares, pitch how good they are? Like you said, send the promise the A team, send the C team. Is that how you're able to still grow market share all these years later, even though it's been happening for 20, 30 years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't want to denigrate because obviously, you know, some of the firms are very strong and they do do very good work, and so it's not not a generalisation. But we see it enough to know that there's a, a good opportunity for us. And what we're starting to find is that, you know, clients from the US, the UK, you know, Europe are happy to give us mandates because they see a particularly unique combination of things, whether it's, you know, ability to network at the highest levels um, <clears throat> you know, in government and business um, or just sort of intellectual horsepower when it comes to modelling and, and solving complex problems. As I said, the only issue, it's the old story, you know, you don't get sacked for buying um, IBM. So when you've got a local, you know, brand, you're always up against, well, why wouldn't they use, you know, Goldman Sachs or UBS or someone like that, or more recently, Baron Joey. So that's always a constant issue, but there's quite a bit of work to go around here. I want to ask you about a couple of the other roles that you've held and, and continue to hold over the years. You've been a board member of Multiplex, you're on the board of Crown in Burswood, a chairman of Strike Energy, you're also on the Future Fund. Perhaps we'll, we'll start with the Future Fund. How did that role come about and, and what has been most enjoyable in, in being involved with that? Well, I mean, just, just the the smarts of the people involved, you know, from Peter Costello and <clears throat> Raph Arndt and everybody associated. But, but I would start with, I actually was appointed to the board of EFIC, the Export Finance Insurance Corporation, quite a long time ago. Um, <clears throat> and that, that was a really interesting experience, West Australian going on our trade credit agency. And then not long after that, appointed to the Payment Systems Board of the Reserve Bank. And I did 10 years there. And that was, again, a fantastic experience. A lot of the changes around surcharging and you know the, the the kind of control of systemic risk you know in the in the payment system and getting to work and see inside the the, the reserve bank and then subsequent to that 10 years now pretty much 10 years on the future fund so i've been very fortunate and there's not a lot of west australians who get to have those gigs marks one obviously reserve bank but um on these federal government icons uh, if you think, uh, if you think about it that way, and so the the way that you can then interact with people, you're from the west, or you know that's you know that's a bit of a novelty, um, but also just getting an insight into the way those institutions work and just what high quality they are. So the Future Fund, you know, was Peter Costello's invention. Um, he's been chair the whole time I've been on the board. We both finish up in February. Um, he's just been incredible as a leader and setting the standards. And then the people inside the place, Rafant, you know, the CEO and everyone we interact with are just people of the highest quality, wonderful ethical framework. So they understand exactly what they're trying to achieve. And they've taken Australia to the world stage by the relationships they've had with fund managers all around the world across, you know, the whole spectrum of assets, you know, infrastructure, alternatives, you know, commercial property, industrial property, equities, PE, VC, so it goes on. And, you know, we, we've uh, managing well over 200 billion now, um, 250 if you count the other ancillary funds. Um, it's a serious player on the world stage and it gives us a, a seat at the table and um, 
long mark continues. So it's been a real privilege. I've learnt so much. Well, I just want to touch on, on some of those learnings. What have been the, the key standouts? Oh, I just think, again, you taking intellectual rigour um, in your approach to markets, you know, so you start with a macro and, you know, that's got to involve a whole lot of inputs, you know, geopolitical, um, you know, the, the monetary system, you know, monetary policy, fiscal policy across the major economies, not just, you know, one or two, not just Australia, but, okay, tell us about, you know, what the Fed's going to do or what the Bank of England's going to do or, you know, um, and then, <clears throat> you know, what's it mean for commodity prices, what's it mean for yields, what's it mean for real estate? you know, timberland, infrastructure like airports, you know, and, and just the way they go about the analysis of selecting managers, selecting assets that they're interested in, because you probably know that all the money is outsourced to managers, so a lot of the time it's making sure we're dealing with best of breed managers who are bringing you the best opportunities. Um, and I think the learnings have been about that, you know, just, just the way you know, I'm much more scattergun, shoot from the hip kind of thing, and these people are just so disciplined um, and, and really respected globally for their competence. What about the multiplex board role that you held for, for some years? Such an iconic Australian business prior to it being sold and an iconic uh, family, the Roberts family, who you, you obviously know well. What have you learned from, what did you learn from being on, on that uh, board and of, of that company and, and what have you learned from the Roberts family more broadly? Well, I mean, John Roberts was an absolute legend, fearless um, and, you know, extremely competent, um, had wonderful relationships and also very risk tolerant, you know, sort of went to the UK, went to the Middle East, you know, took the business global um, and, and just, again, had the capacity to deliver for clients things on time, on budget, um, you know, and, and really set the standard, and as far as I'm concerned, for the way you build things. But obviously there was also the investment in property and real estate as well, so, you know, that was a really good, solid adjunct to the business, you know, just owning real estate um, that, that, you know, was carefully chosen and went up and, you know, helped the balance sheet. I got involved um, as they were listing the company, um, and that itself is quite interesting because you've run a private business, a very large private business for a very long time and then you have to take yourself to the discipline of being a listed company which for, for, you know took some adjustment but to their you know eternal credit they actually really believed in and followed the whole concept of a board of directors you know so there'd be a real temptation to say oh the board's just a token we'll keep doing what we're doing they, they really relied upon and respected the board and that was great I would say that <clears throat> having been involved with Austal for a long time and then subsequently Crown it's interesting when you look at the way a, a company runs when it's got a strong founder or founding family um, in the sense that they've got the most skin in the game of any shareholder and so whilst a lot of people criticise the whole concept of there being a dominant shareholder represented on the board, as long as the whole board process is respected, um, you'll find that no one's trying harder than, you know, the major shareholder. And it's interesting. And they're probably likely to be, and certainly in the case of Multiplex and, well, I'd say all three, but Austal, you know, going to the US, you know, that was a really interesting move strategically but also risky that paid off you know hugely uh, multiplex as i said going going global and crown you know building things like 
the, and the towers, buildings here and what they've done elsewhere, they're obviously somewhat tarnished, unfortunately. But, you know, just again, uh, driven by the desire to deliver, um, you know, value add. So, you know, the Roberts family, you know, I hugely respect them. John was great, you know, and, and I think, as I said, they, they would have been <clears throat> happy to go again with Brookfield. It was just a twist of fate, in a sense, that the independent directors said, this bid from Brookfield's not quite enough. The, the Roberts turned from being buyers in the buying consortium with Brookfield to sellers, and then, of course, the GFC happened straight after that. So you often wonder about what might have happened. I mean, Brookfield, you know, has gone on to be hugely successful, but it's quite interesting that the nuance around that. Crown Birdswood, still one of the great precincts anywhere in Australia, as is Barangaroo and as is Crown Melbourne, which is a credit to the, the Packer family and, and James in particular with everything that, that he achieved. I know you hold a lot of respect for him and vice versa, him for you. What did you learn from being part of, of that, that board? Well, again, I think, um, you know, just probably from a James's point of view, when he was on song, the attention to detail was incredible. He was over everything. And, you know, part of the problem with what happened with Crown was him looking away and doing other things. You know, his, his mental challenges have been well documented and I think that's sad. Um, but, you know, when he was on song, it was, it was incredible. And he was driving all sorts of things, you know, the, the Barangaroo development precinct is just extraordinary, you know, that's, that's such a legacy for the city. And again here, you know, I think single-handedly Crown Towers lifted everybody in hospitality so that that was the new standard to follow. So, you know, if you were going to build a new hotel, that's, you had to start there. And, and so for the city, for Western Australia to have that legacy, I think has been terrific. And, you know, we're always trying to get more tourists here. Um, so you've actually got some that world class. I mean, there's obviously a few now, um, but when that was conceived in the early, you know, 2010, 11, started in 13, finished in 16, that was pretty, pretty novel. So, yeah, I learned a lot. You were appointed to the board of Perth Airport at the end of 2022. How do you find the, the aviation sector? Well, I've been a pilot since I was 17, um, so I kind of understand from a user point of view that infrastructure. There's always a lot to learn. I mean, airports are property developments and retail as much as anything, and that's actually a bit of an issue when you're a pilot because, you know, all very well to buy something to make money out of the peripherals, which turn out to be almost mainstream. Um, don't lose sight of the fact you're actually a really important piece of infrastructure for a city. Something like 95 or 94 per cent of people coming to the West enter through Perth Airport. You know, a huge responsibility. So make sure that your aviation infrastructure is actually, you know, delivering for, you know, because you've got a social licence to operate, you know. So don't gouge, you know, make sure you're providing the right services and all of that. One of the problems with Perth Airport has been it's had a long-standing dispute with Qantas and you know it's been pistols at 50 paces for a very long time um, and so we're hoping that that actually gets resolved because there's a huge amount of capex to undertake at Perth Airport a third runway the parallel runway which is nearly a billion dollars and then there's the central hub the central precinct so Qantas to move to the central area where international is T1 and 2 um, and we want to get on with that um, and then obviously develop more direct routes, you know, so that Perth's the western gateway to the, the, the rest of the country. 
um, you know, a very valuable, very important piece of infrastructure and, um, and you know, lots more to be done. So that's been, been interesting. I thought we'd now move into some more general topics in particular. How have you seen the Western Australian business landscape evolve over the past three, four decades? Well, you know, I think we were very narrowly focused um, back in the 60s, 70s when I first got involved. And we went through that period of, you know, quite extraordinary um, focus, you know, from the Holmes Accords and, and, and uh, the Connells and, and, you know, the Bonds and people like that, which probably set us back quite a long way in terms of whilst I think in some cases the motives might have been quite sound, hey, we want to really get this place going, the way it was executed was clearly not very good. And so reputationally we suffered a lot. In a way though, then the pendulum swung quite a bit the other way, so that when Richard Court became Premier, he was determined to stamp out any remnants of any suggestion there was more WI Inc. You know, it was no, we're totally squeaky clean. And in a way, we probably didn't do as much through that period as we might have. I mean, he was a very good Premier, but, but I think that was, you know, that's the whole pendulum effect. And then as the 80s, 90s, or say 90s and noughties and to now, you know, just our natural resources have sort of developed in a way that's kind of really shone a light on the, the state. An incredibly, you know, prosperous, you know, huge, um, you know, gross state product per capita, almost like the Middle East, Qatar and places like that. Very capital intensive, but you spend the capital and then you reap the benefits. So whether it's a Fortescue or Woodside, what's happened with Rio and BHP, you know, more recently Mineral Resources, and, and you know, the, 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 some of those iconic companies have been run extremely well and they've done extremely well for shareholders. And I think that's changed the perception of Western Australia. There's still probably quite a lot of envy from Sydney and Melbourne looking in. You don't deserve it, you're all cowboys still or whatever. That is such you know, an out, outdated <coughs> view of us. There's really good corporate governance. You know, People are right into their ESG responsibilities. And I think you know, we've matured enormously. You would have hoped that would happen given the amount of capital that's been deployed. Um, but I think, you know, probably one of the things to be done is more amenity now. You know, we obviously look at the tourism sector and go, well, we need more direct traffic into here from, you know, Asia in particular, and we need more things for people to do when they're here. Um, and, and that's not just for tourists, that's for people that decide to come and live here as well. So, you know, there's quite a bit more to be done, but I think we've got a, a framework now, we've got a very strong um, fiscal environment, you know, the, the state's doing extremely well and um, I think we've got a Premier that actually understands the concept of a legacy and also understands that this legesse never goes on forever, so you eventually run out of things or in the case of, you know, <coughs> fossil fuel, over time, you know, people need to move away from that. So. That's the challenge going forward, that we take what we've evolved into and go to the next stage. And, and that's watch this space. And where do you think those opportunities are long term, eventually when you move out of uh, the reliance on mining? Is it tourism? Is it experiences? Could this be a, a, a another financial hub bigger than it is 
today, you know, a real sort of financial centre. Where, where do you think the, the long-term growth is? Well, you've hit a couple. I mean, let's start with the last one. You know, it is a nonsense that the place that employs the people it does, you know, through the government, through Woodside, through West Farmers, you know, the companies we've talked about, send their superannuation money east to be managed. Um, we do not have a substantial funds management industry here. There's, what, over $3 trillion in Australian super, and yet it's all managed pretty much elsewhere. Now, <clears throat> even if you took that and put it over there and said, well, what about the time zone? So a lot of money is coming from Hong Kong down to Singapore. There's a huge amount of wealth being created in Southern Asia. Why wouldn't we grab some of that and manage it? If people are moving money from Hong Kong to Singapore for you know, insurance purposes, shall we say, why wouldn't they put a bit down here? So you've got to start somewhere. And what I would have hoped is the government might say, we really think that you know, the government superannuation money, part of it should be very much managed here, actively managed, not outsourced. <clears throat> and then, you know, maybe some of the other employers would follow and then you start to attract an industry and all, all the peripheral benefits that come from that. So I, that's one of the things that's a, a very strong um, ambition of mine to try and help us grow into that. Um, medical tourism, you know, we've got huge um, capacity and capability in um, and expertise in all sorts of areas of medicine. And we've got a precinct that we could grow into something much bigger. Um, so I think that there's an opportunity to grow that, attract world-class researchers here, give, pay them money to come, because you get the multiplier effect. You know, venture capital into biotech, into medicine, and I think is important. The tourism thing, you know, we need much more infrastructure in the regions. Um, so people tend to fly over the Kimberley, land at Perth Airport, and they go, oh, it's a long way to go back up there kind of thing. So developing, developing um, hospitality, accommodation, and infrastructure, airport infrastructure, in places outside of Perth, I think is really important. And so it goes on, um, you know. So adding value to the things we're already doing, that's a perennial issue. Um, but there's a lot to do. You've sat on many public company boards, as I've outlined. You've also uh, run your own companies. Just on the, the public company piece, is it over-regulated and uh, is there way too much red tape to actually make it attractive for people to want to sit on a public company board these days or even to take their company from private ownership to public ownership? Yeah, I think that's a real issue and you've seen it already uh, with the, you know, the rise of private equity. Um, and when I talk to people about, you know, becoming a director, a non-exec director of a, of a company, I tend to now try and steer them towards companies owned by private equity. Um, you get better rewarded, you're not, you know, pilloried, um, and, you know, you basically can often do things without, as you say, the kind of restrictions that might come from being the public arena. That's not to say that the checks and balances that exist, you know, by the rules around being a non-exec director on a public company aren't appropriate, but sometimes it goes too far. And um, so, yeah, that governance piece around being a director, that, you know, where's the upside, you know? So the moment something goes wrong, you, you know, you're in the frame, whereas if you're, if you're in a private equity-related business, then nothing to see here kind of thing, or not, not the same scrutiny. And then I think just generally, <clears throat> you know, being able to do things 
um, without being fettered by red tape. I mean, that, there's always a tendency for government to want to regulate, over-regulate. And um, we're seeing a bit of that in, you know, the environmental issues, um, you know, that are totally valid, but the way the system works is a real drag on people getting things done because there's no incentive for a decision to be made within a time frame. <clears throat> so there's a real cost and opportunity cost to the promoter for the delays that occur. So, yeah, I think there's two things. One, it's much more risky than it used to be to be a director of a public company. Um, it's getting much harder to get insurance, you know, DNO insurance because of the claims. And being, you know, companies out trying to do things, I think, you know, governments need to realise that they should be trying to facilitate within reason, right, not hold things back. Reflecting on, on your career, what have been the, the fundamentals for success that, that you've learned that you can share? I, I think backing young, smart people probably is one of the main things that I've been lucky to do and trying to look into the future and trying to imagine a, a, a future that's credible and take people on that journey, I think, if, if that you're so inclined to do that. Um, <clears throat> being risk tolerant is probably one of the most important things for me. I think when I look around at younger people, I think there's a real danger that they're suppressed, uh, you know, that their risk appetite might be suppressed by being fearful about the environment and inevitably you know I guess media sells its copy by beating up a story that says things are pretty terrible and you better watch out you know too much of that does create an environment where particularly younger people either switch off and are totally into social media and their little universe um, or if they think about doing something, oh, why would I do that? One, if I'm going to put my head up above the parapet, maybe I'll get it chopped down if I'm not successful. And two, you know, financially, is it worth the risk-reward? You know, I can get an easy, cushy job. And So I, I'm always trying to tell people, take measured risks, be prepared to fail, learn from your failures and have another crack. Um, because if we don't do that, or if society doesn't do that, what have we got? Um, so I think that's kind of, you know, back young people, take a longer term view about things, you know, when you're 30 or 40, you've still got a long time to go. And um, so you can make up for mistakes by just time and, and learning from them and having another go. I think that probably, yeah. oh, one other thing, keep fit. I think keep fit. You need to have the energy to be able to execute what your brain's telling you you should be doing. And so, you know, watching your health, I think is probably alongside the things I've said, one of the most important things and um, you just have a different attitude to life when you're keeping healthy and fit. Keys for effective deal making, you've done a lot of deals in your career clearly in terms of selling businesses but also acting as a corporate advisor inside businesses. What have you learnt uh, in terms of executing deals? It's usually about alignment of interest. Um, and it's also about a measure of trust. I think I remember a deal that I was involved in with one of my colleagues, who was much more pedantic than me, spent literally days and days, probably weeks, you know, in the minutiae of the contract. And in the end, the contract was, you know, a couple of inches thick and envisaged Martians arriving and that might, you know, trip up the deal kind of thing, you know, and you go, well, Martians aren't coming, you know, like, and we'll attend to that when they do, but don't make it a, you know, a condition that you're worried about in this deal, you know, and I'm joking, but it was a bit like that. So I think you have to adopt a certain element of trust when you're approaching a, a buy-side, sell-side transaction, you know, that 
as long as people's interests are aligned and no one's trying to pull anything over someone else, then it's about, you know, accommodating to the extent you can, representing your interests, whether you're the seller or the buyer, a fair deal. Um, so, you know, I think at the end of the day, business is about people wanting to deal with people they actually enjoy dealing with. So it's great to have technical capability, it's great to have the lawyers go over the contract, but at the end of the day it's generally two individuals or a small number of people dealing with each other to get an outcome. And you have to read the, the room, you have to read the psychology. What have been your biggest achievements? Oh, I don't know there have been any, really. <laughs> um, I think way back, you know, when I was um, at Hartley Point and listing or, or taking WA newspapers out of receivership and listing it um, was, was proved that a small West Australian firm could actually get involved in quite a big deal. We did need JB Weir's help to do it, as it turned out, but that was a, a landmark deal for us. And then we went on and did SJO, the insurance company, and Bank West. And so we had three transactions quite quickly that were all related to each other. They were West Australian iconic businesses that we took to the market. And I think we got you know, rewarded for that in terms of ongoing deals after that. Um, from my point of view, it's been about the people I've been able to attract to be in business with me, whether it was the original guys that came in at Hartley Pointon. Um, there were a great group of people, and they've all gone on to be really successful in whatever they've done. And then that's carried on into GEM and PPG and Azure. And it makes you feel good, you know, that you've been involved in things that have created careers that carry on to this day and people have done very well. And then hopefully the, you know, the, the contribution to the, the community and part of that then is getting involved in not-for-profits in a museum and a business school and Christchurch Grammar School Council and things like that. So that parallel thing of giving back to the community at the same time. Um, but I think, you know, just creating an environment for smart people to work together to achieve outcomes is probably it. I had one quite good transaction that I did privately in the healthcare sector, which sort of, given I didn't know anything about healthcare, was kind of indication that a lot of the time business is generic and as long as you've got sector experts around you that if you've got an, a sense of what can be achieved strategically you don't have to be you know an industry expert. On the philanthropy piece uh, you're obviously involved in so many of these organisations because you want to as opposed to, to some that sort of have to do it or want to be seen as, as doing it. Why is that so important to you? Well, I think, you know, there's a bit of there, but for the grace, you know, having been born in Australia any time in the last, you know, however long, you've won the lottery, you know, even if you're born to very modest circumstances, because it's such a great country, and you only need to travel around a bit to see that. And so there's almost a karma thing, you know, like, I've been so lucky, I better, you know, probably give back and prove that I actually am grateful for that. Um, but also, I think, you know, trying to draw out other people to have that view without, you know, moralising or lecturing people, I think is great. So I remember one of my partners who died at a young age um, got involved in philanthropy in a way that he hadn't before and the joy in his face to get involved in it was just, you know, it was great. So taking other people on that journey. Um, things like Celebrate WA where we were 
We changed Foundation Day to Western Australia Day. It was much more inclusive. Um, and, you know, Western Australia, the year awards and all those sort of things, which other states don't have, by the way, was very satisfying too. You know, that celebration of the quiet achievers in the community. Um, so I think, you know, that's been a very important part of my career to, to do that whether it's in education or culture and the arts or, as I said, in the social environment. Um, and I just think that having done it, I've really got a lot out of it. And in a way, in a career kind of way, it actually positions you differently because not many people do it. And so if you're seen as a rapacious stockbroker or investment banker, but you've actually, you know, give, given, you know, contributed in some way, maybe just your time, um, it positions you differently in a way that I think is good. To close out our discussion, what does the, the next chapter look like? You've been involved in almost every sector, every industry, uh, so many different fields. What, is there anything left that, that you still haven't achieved that you want to? Um, I really want to see this firm achieve you know, great success, and I think it can. Um, and it partially is around contributing again to the fabric of business in Western Australia. If, if we've got a sufficiently strong team here that you know, the large companies don't need to go east to get the advice that we can give them. I think that's, that's all you can really hope for. Building careers, young people's careers, and then things like, specifically, we talked earlier about funds management, you know. Trying to get involved in seeding that idea and seeing it grow. And whether that's, you know, mainstream funds management or peripherally things like venture capital funding or private equity funding, I think, um, is something I've got yet to do, for sure. John Poynton, AO, privilege having you on the program. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Rob. It's been great.